please be advised, this episode may include depictions of murder, sexual content, and foul language not suitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Hi, welcome back to Wickedness. I'm Matt. And I'm Lenny. All right, Lenny Lee. (laughs) We are bringing you some fun this week because after this week of 2021 starting out, (laughs) we've had some craziness going on in the world, specifically in our part of the world, in Mm -hmm. the U.S., the storming of the Capitol. Um, Wow, we felt like there was a need to have something to take your minds off of that by listening to us absolutely what it's, better way i know it's to forget crazy. your troubles than to tune right. in to wickedness yeah i listen to podcasts definitely especially on the way to work every day and on the way back i um, listen to it while it i'm helps. sitting in my office you know working i have several favorite podcasts like mm-hmm. crime junkies that's one of my favorites morbid i love those ladies so yeah there's some shout outs to some of my favorites yeah and takes my mind off the crap too yeah mine are well, I listen to all sorts of different stuff, but I'll listen, you know, a lot of times on the way to work, I'll listen to somewhat of one and then try to finish it on the way back at work. If I'm at where I can listen to one, um, but I don't, I find myself not paying attention a whole lot <laughs> as much as I'd like to, to the podcast. Yeah. So I'm, but it's a good thing because I'm paying attention to the actual work that needs to be done. So that's probably a good, that is a good thing. I'm going to share a little secret though. There was one day I was listening to morbid and I can't remember exactly which episode it was, but I was typing an email out to someone at work and I started typing what Elena was saying. Yeah. You know, one of the hosts of morbid and I was like, Nope, can't send that email. So I had to turn it off because I was listening too much to the podcast Sure, and not, not focusing enough on work. So. Well, and two, with all the craziness in the world, you know, I wanted to bring up something as as far as it's nice to talk about family time and yes. having having that good family interaction. And we love our family time. We enjoy playing games, just talking. Uh, we'll break out the karaoke machine. My my wife loves karaoke, so we have some some karaoke nights Heck here yeah. and there. Watch just watching movies, things things like that. Just kind of chillaxing, especially as busy as we are throughout the day. Uh, it's just nice to get together. And then our families get along uh, well, too. So that's definitely a plus, Yep. at least for the most part, right? And we know that many families can't stand each other. They fight. Um, they just don't talk at all. They're estranged from each from one another. And I know I have some family that I have had heard from in, uh, maybe in years, and I think you two yeah, as yeah. well. I've, I've got some that there was like a falling out in our family way back when between my dad and his brothers or... Something like that. Anyway, I don't even remember all the details, but that caused us to grow apart from our cousins who we were close to at the time too, mm-hmm. way back when. Yeah. And I, we still don't talk much to this day. Like we follow each other on Facebook and we're friendly in that way. Sure. But 
no one's reaching out to say, hey, let's hang out. Let's catch up. Let's see what's going on in each other's lives. And one of our cousins specifically doesn't even try. Like, we, he won't even friend us on Facebook for yeah. some reason. And it's like, what did we ever do to you, buddy? But yeah. whatever. Yeah. whatever. You know, Maybe. I mean, that happens. I don't know if they got a taste of the craziness from the adults and then they're like, I don't know. Who knows? Or maybe they're just like. spread to the to the children. Or, or maybe they think they didn't bother to reach out to me, so why should I bother to reach out to them? In the same respect, someone's got to break the ice. Sure. I don't know. Anyway. Be the bigger person. Yeah, I'm not going to do it though. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I've mentioned this to you before. It's like the patriarch or matriarch of the family. They're like that glue. And then when they pass away, everything it seems falls like apart. everything falls apart a lot. Yeah. The family get-togethers that used to happen. And we used to have a lot of them. Like, I mean, I felt like two, three times a year. Definitely a couple times a year we would. And mm-hmm. my great-grandfather on my mom's side, and he would, I remember him telling stories and everybody would gather around and listen to him tell stories from back in the day. But everybody, I mean, it seemed, it, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I just enjoyed that. Well, we had, I mean, we were close growing up when we were all kids, but just the falling out with our parents and, as we grew up, we just grew apart and didn't hang out anymore, didn't talk, you know, sure. except occasionally. And holidays, please forget it, because my dad really had a falling out with his dad. And we didn't even see them, I don't even know how long. Like, we just didn't see them. Yeah. Ever. Definitely family is important, uh, however and wherever you can find it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, whether whether it's well, even through friends and stuff that we've made through the military. I was about to say that we, we have friends that we consider to be family. Oh, yeah. We were close as family. Well, we've done we're a lot closer. of things with our military friends or military families, you know, those Thanksgiving times mm-hmm. or Christmas. Yeah, when you're not near your, your blood family. Sure. You have your, your backup family, and we have a lot of that. Yeah. And we still make it a point these days to, to reach out through text, phone calls, get-togethers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we try to, like annual events where we kind of meet up with with certain friends that we have yeah so that's fun it's something to look forward to yep i was talking to one of those certain friends today mm-hmm. miss that lady so anyway. i know yeah no <laughs> let's I'm, talk about a crazy family today you want to talk about a crazy family i do that's why i am all right we're going to talk about or my wife's going to be the general host here she's going to talk about the manson family charles manson and friends <laughs> and we're going to cover their early lives to try to piece together why they were the way they were and why why they were drawn together. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to try to anyway, you know, because... Speculation. They, they say the the family that prays together stays together, but yeah. I don't think that this Manson family was praying together. The, the family that does LSD together stays together, maybe. Yeah, maybe, or the family that kills together stays together. Sure, we've got... Now we're... We're bonded for sure. <laughs> I know, right? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So we're just gonna. I'm just gonna describe a few of these family members. This is part one. So okay. We're gonna have a part two where we go into like the actual murders and the the like what trial. Happened, yeah. The big things mm-hmm. that people. But I thought know. there's just so much to know in this case. I thought it would be it'd be fun to to do a two parter and introduce the the people who were convicted of the murders, not every member in his family, because good grief, that would just, we would be here all night. Well, you think about Charles Manson alone. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many books have been written about him. Oh, I don't know, but I've read two. How many documentaries, how many movie type things, short, I don't know, but you know, there's all out there. There's a huge fascination with him and his family. And it's, it's not just because of who they killed. 
It's because he had such mind control yeah. over these people. I mean, he made the all-American kids kill. Mm-hmm. Who does that? I mean, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, You'll for see, like, a psychologist, psychiatrist, it's a huge study. Mm-hmm. It's um, crazy. And even for the FBI. But anyway, I'll let you get, yeah. get kind of going in here. So I'm actually going to start with Charles okay. Manson. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with the leader of the pack, because why not? That's, how, that's what all these people are known for, right? So Charles Manson, called Charlie by his family and followers, was born on November 12, 1934 in Ohio. His mom was Kathleen Maddox, and his father left him before he was born. But his mom married William Manson right before he was born, and he carried his stepfather's name. Even though his mom married William Manson, Charlie ended up growing up with his mom's relatives in what was described to be a neglectful and abusive home. So I'm thinking that, like, stepdaddy didn't really want him. Okay. That's what I'm assuming. By the age of 13, Charlie was committing various petty crimes, including theft, and in 1949, he was detained by the Indiana Boys' School where he was sexually assaulted and abused himself. And after several escape attempts and transfers to several juvenile detention centers, Charlie began committing violent sexual assaults on other boys. It was ultimately transferred to, o- to the Ohio Federal Reformatory in 1952. So it's kind of sad, like he... He didn't try to save people from doing this. Instead, he went the opposite way, and he was like, well, it was done to me. I'm going to do it to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I was thinking when you think maybe that was okay, like he thought that that was okay to do because it was done to him. I don't know. He was crazy. I heard, too, that his mom would like wanted him to be a girl and would dress him up in a dress. I think I read something about that, yeah. And maybe it wasn't only his mom. Maybe it was the folks that he lived with, this other, you know, the family that he went to. But, Yeah. Yeah, I had read something about that too, but he was a boy. <laughs> you know, right. he, he was a short boy, but he was a boy. Two years after being transferred to the Ohio Federal Reformatory, at the age of 19 in 1954, Charlie Manson was released to his aunt and uncle in McMechan, West Virginia. For a little while, he seemed to calm down and grow up a little bit. He even got married and moved to Los Angeles, California. However, it was found that Charlie was continuing to commit crimes, and in 1957, he was sentenced to three years in a Los Angeles prison. While he was in prison, his wife filed for divorce, which I don't blame her. I mean, you think about it. You go to prison. It happens tons that way. Yeah, I'm not saying, like, if you went to prison, sorry, babe, I love you, but I'm not living my life like that. Going to visit you in prison and all this kind of crap all the time. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So don't go to prison, okay? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> from, <laughs> from 1957 to 1967, Charlie was in a cycle of suspended sentences, probation violations, and imprisonment. Basically, he's living a life of crime. The kid is crazy just from the start. Just one thing after another. Mm-hmm. Doesn't care either. He's trying everything. He became a pimp. He was married to a sex worker for a short time, probably was his pimp, and then married her, you know, I'm assuming. Yeah. He began trying to figure out a way to become famous also. Do you think when he was a pimp, I mean, what did he dress like? Did he have like this big hat <laughs> and a furry coat? But he's like this little guy. It would seem like it would swallow him up. But he but he had these big shoes on with these big high heel type. <laughs> I don't know, but that would be funny. He's like Dolomite. But, you know, he was a little guy. Like he was like five five or something mm-hmm. he was he was, he was small for small. a guy and small in stature too so i always when when i was reading that he was a pimp i always picture like these 
these Johns, you know, with his his girls or whatever, and him trying to be an enforcer. Come like, on, whoop your I, ass! I'm gonna I laugh at him. you. Like I'm not taking right? you seriously. I don't understand. Maybe that's why he wasn't a pimp for very long. Yeah. He couldn't really enforce anything, but I don't know. I'm just assuming. So he really, really wanted to become famous. This was a thing for him, and he learned to play the guitar. He paid careful attention to the Beatles. He was like obsessed with the Beatles. I mean, even all of his murders, he blamed on, blamed on Helter Skelter. Wow. He developed ambitions of being a singer songwriter and he attempted to gain insider connections to film studios, which was really kind of cool. If you think about it, like he really went out of his way to, to make his dreams happen at the same time. He carefully studied religion and found ways to use it as a tool to control and manipulate other people. He especially studied Scientology, yet people people thought he was Jesus Christ. Yeah. So weird. Hmm. But he also sought the advice of other career criminals, including other pimps, who taught him techniques to successfully coerce and break down the resistance of the women under his control. So he had he had mentor pimps. What? <laughs> so Okay. <laughs> Well, mentor <laughs> too, and I don't know if you mentioned it through here. What wasn't one of the songs that he did? He actually wrote one of the Beach Boy songs. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I do mention you that do? in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, so in 1967, Charlie was released from federal prison, and he had a parole officer. But with his release, he moved to San Francisco and frequented the Haight Ashbury Clinic, where they were conducting LSD experiments. And it's crazy if you read the book Chaos. Mm-hmm. It goes into detail about this. It is a, like, this book is great. I recommend it. I can't wait to read it at some point because I bought it and gave it to you and I wasn't with the intentions of reading, but I I was glad that you did read that and found it fascinating. It's amazing. Like, it's it's really crazy. And that guy, he spent 20 plus years just writing it, right? Yeah. He basically, yeah, what started off as a a magazine article that That he he thought would be quick. Uh-huh. And um, didn't care a whole lot about. Yeah. Turned into a 20 plus year deep dive into. Rabbit hole. All of this. Yeah. Yeah. Just nuts stuff. So this is where Manson found a ton of hippies forming groups and doing drugs and living that hippie lifestyle. Just living free. Free love. Heck yeah. So Manson had already learned how to manipulate people and he used drugs to lure others into his warped mind. Like he, he already had. The the religious Scientology stuff on his his oh, side yeah. where he was manipulating people that way and mm-hmm. then he added some LSD to oh, that and oh. now he's really got people in you his get, control. You get, oh, big time. I could imagine if you're tripping or whatever and, and then he gets on his rant, I could see people just, and him, getting fired mm-hmm. up too and really getting people motivated. Yeah. So he his first follower was 23-year-old Mary Brunner, and she was a librarian who happily supported Charlie financially while he recruited other followers. Somehow he took this quiet, sweet 23-year-old librarian and turned her into a follower. Wow. And then she supported him. Like she paid she he lived with her, all that stuff, and she just worked and made sure that he had enough money to do what he needed to do to recruit other followers. So he recruited from all over, and the hippie movement made it so easy for him because everybody was like into free mind, free your mind, free oh, love. Do the two were were perfect, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it really made it easy for him to it. recruit. Mm-hmm. People were just different back then. So entire families even moved to California to join the hippie communes and experience or live the hippie lifestyle, bringing their kids into it as well. 
One example is Diane Lake, the youngest known Manson follower. Her family had moved from Minnesota to California to experience the hippie lifestyle, and they lived in a commune called Wavy Gravy's Hog Farm. <laughs> I know, right? Awesome. Yeah. And Diane Lake's parents allowed her to use drugs and have sex, and she met Charlie at age 14 at this commune. Wow. Her parents gave their blessing for her to join the family and began a sexual relationship with Charlie. They were basically like, yeah, go girl, do your thing. Okay. At 14. Jeez. I know. She didn't participate in the Manson murders, but she was a member of the family at the time that the crimes were committed, and she testified at the trials. She was a witness. Manson would also travel throughout California to recruit, go into places like San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and Los Angeles's Venice Beach, quote, presenting himself as a religious figure and urging them to follow him by surrendering their, surrendering their identities to him completely, end quote. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Because if someone walks up to me on a beach randomly and starts talking and starts introducing themselves as some kind of preacher or whatever and, like, turn yourself over to me, you're, I want your everything. Yeah. I'm laughing and running away. <laughs> right. Like, dude is psycho. Mm -hmm. But back then, I think people were so high and so uh, trusting. Like, everybody's friendly. Everybody's groovy. <laughs> and, uh, you know? Like, it can't be all bad, right? No, wrong. And people did. They went willingly and happily with a crazy person who claimed to be Jesus Christ. And it, as his followers count grew, he packed everyone up and moved them all south to Los Angeles so that he could follow his dream of becoming a star. So not only is he building his own hippie commune, free love and all that, but he's also still pursuing his dream of being a star. Yeah. He's and just he's got free supporters there. Yeah. He's got his fan base. Oh, yeah, going. he does. He definitely does. So... While Manson was in L.A. near Hollywood, he began working on forming connections with people who could help him become a star. I'm not exactly sure how he did this, but he was able to make a few connections. One who described Charlie as a nice guy and even had Charlie babysit his kids. He trusted him so much to leave his kids with him. Wow. Which, but I mean, what are you thinking? What do you think this guy thought after the murders happened. Oh, yeah. He probably thought, oh, what my gosh, I love my kids well, with too, that guy. <laughs> you know, in that area, there's just so many that are in the business that know somebody that knows somebody, mm -hmm. you know, to make connections. Yeah, it's true. But who did Charlie know? And one who let Charlie have a recording session but said when he showed up, he was unprepared, unreliable, and not talented. So he didn't really have much to do with him. But the one, one main connection that Charlie was able to form was through a couple of his girls from the family who were hitchhiking one day when beach boy Dennis Wilson picked him up. So Charlie really just got a lucky break on this one. Yeah. So he, he really manipulated and controlled Dennis Wilson too. Like he, he and the family ended up moving into Dennis Wilson's mansion for several months in 1968. Wow. And they lent him thousands. I didn't know all that. Yeah. Dennis lent him thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. And he even, Dennis Wilson even introduced Charlie to Terry Melcher, who's the son of Doris Day, who was a record producer. He also convinced the Beach Boys to record one of Charlie's songs, which is what you were talking about earlier. Okay. So Terry Melcher was dating Candace Bergen. You remember, you remember mm -hmm. her, Murphy Brown? Yeah. And the two of them rented a house together. It was the house 10050 Cielo Drive, which is where the murders happened. Oh. They lived there okay. before... Sharon Tate and yeah. Roman Polanski gotcha. did. Charlie and Dennis frequently visited Terry at his house there at Cielo Drive. And due to 
Terry not signing Charlie to a record deal, he was basically avoiding it altogether and putting Charlie off. Charlie started treating Dennis badly as if it was Dennis's fault that Terry was ignoring him. And due to their re- declining relationship, Dennis opted to change the title of Charlie's song that the Beach Boys had recorded from Cease to Exist to Never Learn Not to Love. And they, they changed Charlie's blues influences to the Beach Boys pop style in the song. And they didn't give any credit to Charlie as the songwriter when the single was released. Okay. So they totally just wrote him out of it, even though he did write the song. And Charlie got so pissed off that he threatened to kill Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the time, I think maybe Dennis might have taken him seriously because he didn't know him. But I don't know if I'd have been scared of this little guy. Like, I'm going to kill you. Like, what are you going to do, buddy? You can't prove it. You got to prove it. But apparently that's not how Dennis felt about it. He did get freaked out. And he even had, he left his mansion with the family living in it. And he had his manager go and evict the family from his house in August of 1968. So that's when the family ended up moving to Spawn Ranch. But can you imagine sending your manager to do Do this for you because you couldn't handle doing it? Right. That's funny. I just don't want to put up with them. No, and I don't blame him either. So the Spawn Movie Ranch was where they ended up living, and it was a popular movie set used for filming westerns way back when. And Charlie traded sex for free room and board. He basically pimped out the girls and his family to the owner of Spawn Ranch so that they didn't have to pay to live there. Okay. Yeah, kind of wow. crazy, right? That pimp experience, it mm-hmm. came in handy. <laughs> yeah, all that mentoring you received. <laughs> from fellow pimps. <laughs> right. <laughs> his pimp mentors. Um, shortly after the move, And due to the threat against Dennis, Charlie's temper, his racism, and frequent race-related rants, which he did a lot because he said Helter Skelter was a, it was like a racist thing. And his general lack of talent, Melcher finally told Charlie that he wouldn't be signing him to a record deal. So basically, all of these things in Charlie's temperament contributed to him not getting signed. Mm. But again, Terry Melcher was Doris Day's son, and she reportedly got scared for her son. So she's like, you've got to move out of that house. You and Candace got to move out of there. So they did. They moved out of the Cielo Drive house to her Malibu house. And then by the summer of 1969, Charlie found that it was clear his dreams of stardom weren't going to happen. So Manson knew that Terry and Candace had moved out of this house, but he saw the house as a slap in the face from Hollywood elite. And in August of 1969, he ordered his followers to go to this house on Cielo Drive and kill everyone inside. Jeez. Yeah. So now we know how crazy Charlie is and who he is. We're going to take a brief look at the followers who killed What's friends. craziest, too, is, yeah, go to this house and kill whoever. But, I mean, I understand the Hollywood elite piece, but I don't even – he doesn't even know any of them. No, That he live there. No. Nope. He does or has any idea who's there. No, he. I think that he did. They said that he had visited – one time after Terry had moved out and when Roman and Sharon had moved in mm-hmm. and he had had a run in with one of the ones who were killed. Um, they basically had just told him to leave. Oh, okay. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's a story like that. Behind but, it. Yeah. But okay. uh, that's for part two or something. Like there's, there are. Deeper dives for others. Right. They can do this. So let's start with Tex Watson. Okay. Okay. Good old Tex. Yeah. Charles Denton Tex Watson Jr., born on December 2nd, 1945, in Farmersville, Texas. He used to play them in football. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he was an athlete. He played football, basketball, and ran track. And All he right. was an honor roll student. 
So remember when I said Charlie got these all-American kids to kill for him? Like yeah. here's here's a perfect example of one of those all-American kids right here. Yeah. He grew up in Copeville, Texas, the youngest of three kids. He says he had a happy childhood and looked up to his parents. He attended church regularly and was active in his church. He attended the University of North Texas where he joined a fraternity and started to change, getting more into girls and booze and his grades started slipping. So at this point, this is actually when he starts to to change. He's not murdering people though, you know, right. like yeah. he's just drinking yeah. and doing stuff that people Trying do. To figure out who am I? Right? Maybe he's going through that soul searching soul phase. Soul searching. Everyone yes. does, right? So through his roommate, he got a job as a baggage handler in 1967, which allowed him access to free airfare. Now, I wish I could get a job as a baggage handler and get free airfare. That'd yeah. be cool. They don't do that nowadays, I don't think. I don't think so. So he took advantage of this opportunity to sometimes fly to Hawaii with a girl for a weekend. Wow. So yeah, he, so he they'd be off doing their thing for a weekend and then fly back for free, which... Okay. Let's go to Hawaii. I, I'm down. Heck yeah. So this is also when he started smoking marijuana and experimenting with other drugs. During his senior year of college, he went to California to visit a frat brother, and he fell in love with it. He fell in love with California. Yeah. If I was him, I'd probably fall in love with Hawaii. But all right, California then, whatever. <laughs> he flew back to Texas to tell his parents he was moving to California. And when he got there, he enrolled in Cal State. He worked as a wig salesman in Beverly Hills, and oh, he moved around to a that's few. That's interesting. I know, right? He moved around to a few different places and ended up in Malibu, where he and his roommate started and failed a wig shop. So they like opened their own wig shop, but it wasn't good. How boring. I think it lasted like three months. Oh, geez. Right? After it failed, he sold dope to make rent. That's That was his fallback plan. That's how you get in the dope game. Right? Times get tough. (laughs) Do what you got to do. I guess so. He did. So Los Angeles, where he got lost in the drug and music scene, is where he met the Manson family women who took him to Spawn Ranch and introduced him to Charlie, where he joined the family and became Tex Watson. So prior to this, he wasn't going by Tex, but Charlie started calling him Tex. Yeah, since he's from Texas, Texas, and he called that. Yeah, so he left the family for a short time, living with a lady named Luella, but when that ended, he moved back to the ranch and rejoined the family. This happened in March of 1969, and later that summer, Tex set up a fake drug deal between his ex-girlfriend Luella and a man named Bernard Lotsa Papa Crow. (laughs) I know, right? Lotsa Papa. And... Charlie, like he set it up. It was Luella, lots of Papa, and Charlie, mm-hmm. so that Charlie and Tex could cheat them out of twenty five hundred dollars. Does that make sense? Yeah. But Crow started threatening Luella and the family, so Charlie shot him, thinking he killed him. But Crow survived. And and the funny thing is, on that part, well, yeah. What happened with that? Well, Charlie. Well, it, uh, like Charlie ended up. Um, Telling everybody that he shot and killed a Black Panther because that's what Crow was or whatever. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, you know that story. A little bit. So it comes it. back mm-hmm. to we'll we'll cover it in part two, but it comes back to kind of bite him in the in the booty. Okay. Yeah. So on August eighth, nineteen sixty nine, Tex was part of the group. He was kind of the leader of the group that Charlie sent to Cielo Drive. Yeah. And he also participated in the LaBianca murders mm-hmm. later too. So and was the leader of that one too. Like, he really took charge on those murders. What happened in Texas far as prison? Is, was he ever released? Or he, because no, he was there, he's life in n- I don't think any of them ever got released. Mm-hmm. None of them. Mm-hmm. Um, some for not showing remorse. And we'll, we'll go into we'll this in part that. two. But, 
yeah, he, what I read was that he turned to God though. Like he's preacher man text now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So next up we have the craziest of all of them, which we'll find out more why in part two, but Susan Atkins, she was born on May 7th, 1948 in San Gabriel, California. Her parents were both alcoholics and she was known to be a shy child Her mother died of cancer, and shortly after, she and her father couldn't seem to stop fighting. He eventually abandoned her and her brother, but she ran away from home. Dropping out of school, moved to California, to San Francisco, I should Mm -hmm. say. She was in California already. Okay. So she was able to get a job as a telemarketer, find an apartment, and just scrape by. Just get by. Yeah, she was just scraping by. So she quit that job and started working as a waitress at a cafe. And it was there that she met some convicts, and she left with them. She basically just jumped in the car with them and took Hmm. off. The three of them committed several armed robberies along the West Coast and eventually got caught in Oregon. Like, (laughs) this girl just is already a mess, you know? Wow. Yeah, I'll go with you. We'll rob some people and places. The men went to prison, but Susan served three months in jail and then was released on probation. I don't know why. I mean, maybe because they were prior convicts or something and she wasn't yet first time offender she's young yeah the woman back then they were maybe a little bit more lenient on that yeah Mm. i don't know but to me if they just kept her in jail she stayed in the car a lot when they were doing that stuff she wasn't really something tells me no she's got she's like in the thick of it kind of yeah so after she was released she returned to california and found work as a topless dancer while there, she danced in a show called The Witch's Sabbath that was organized by Church of Satan founder Anton LaVey. Hmm. Yeah, she's crazy. So during this time, she bounced between different relatives' homes until she met Charlie in 1967 and joined his family. She believed Charlie was Jesus Christ, and she followed him blindly from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Like, he could do no wrong. And when the family got fake IDs, She was given the name Sadie Glutz, and that's what most people know her as, as Sadie Sadie. in the Uh, movies and all that stuff. So she liked going on what the family called the, quote, creepy crawler missions, where (laughs) the family would dress in black and go breaking into random houses at night, rearranging and stealing things while people slept. Like, they didn't hurt anyone, but they broke into houses, rearranged their furniture, stole little things. So when you wake up, you have this. But when you do wake up, and your stuff is moved, like, you freak out. That's worse than killing me. That's worse than attacking me. Knowing, hey, Someone just letting was you know, in your wall I was here. Just want you to know that. While you slept. While you slept. Yes. That, mm-hmm. to me, is creepier than hell. Mm-hmm. I'd rather you wake me up and kill me. But no, they didn't do that. So Sadie was reportedly kicked out of the family for a while due to a conflict with Charlie. She basically, from what I was reading, wanted his constant attention, and he got annoyed with her and kicked her out of the family, but let her back in. And when she was accepted back into the family, she was blamed for giving the entire family the clap because, you know, they used to have orgies. Uh So everybody got the clap after Sadie came back. (laughs) (laughs) So she was also a member of the family who lived in Mendocino who were accused of giving LSD to some kids. They were nicknamed... The Witches of Mendocino at the trial. Hmm. Yeah. In October of 1968, Sadie gave birth to a boy. And this, she named oh, him Zizoziki Zadfrak. And after his birth, she spent time recovering at a retreat called the Fountain of the World, a nearby religious retreat. And Susan 
was a huge part of the Hinman murder and the Tate LaBianca murders in August of 1969. She claims that she's the one who actually killed Sharon Tate. Like, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. Man, Sadie's wild. Yeah, she's crazy. So (laughs) next, let's talk about Linda Kasabian. Born on June 21st, 1949 in Bedford, Maine, her parents divorced and remarried while Linda was young. She dropped out of high school and got married at the age of 16, getting a divorce soon after. She got married a second time to a hippie named Robert Kasabian. The, they traveled the country, enjoying the hippie lifestyle, bouncing from commune to commune. Linda and her husband had their first child in 1968, but problems between the couple caused Linda to, and her baby to move to New Hampshire. Bob was trying to reconcile with Linda, so he invited her to California. Bob was living with a guy named Charles Melton, who was friends with a few members of the family. When Linda moved to Los Angeles in 1968, she met family member Gypsy through Charles Melton. Linda met Charlie through family member Gypsy and found his tone to be peaceful during that visit. Mm-hmm. So Linda returned to Los Angeles, grabbed her belongings, stole $5,000 from Charles Melton, and returned to Spawn Ranch and became a member of the family. Wow. Giving her stolen $5,000 to Charlie. Sure. So Linda was sent to the Tate LaBianca murders to be the driver, but she never went into or actively participated in either of the murders. She waited outside in the car during both murders. She was turned state's witness against everyone during the trial. And she actually got immunity. Yeah. She never went to jail. All right. Interesting. Yeah. But up next is Patricia Krenwinkel, born on December 3rd, 1947 in Los Angeles, California. Patricia grew up as an overweight child who was bullied. Her parents divorced when she was 17 years old. At the time, Patricia stayed in California with her father while her mom moved to Alabama. After she graduated high school, She moved to Alabama with her mom, where she considered becoming a nun, but ended up attending a Jesuit college and dropping out after one semester. Okay. So she was very confused. Yeah. She moved back to California, moved in with her half-sister, and got a job as a processing clerk. In 1967, she met Lynette Frome, who was also known as Squeaky. Oh, yeah. Mary Brunner and Charlie on Manhattan Beach. She had sex with Charlie right after meeting him. Wow. Yeah. And then decided to move to Cali- or to San Francisco with them, leaving behind her car and her final paycheck. She was described as having a quiet and intense personality. She helped take care of the children and the family, and she was completely dedicated to Charlie. In the summer of 1968, Patricia and Ella Bailey were hi- hitchhiking in L.A. when they were picked up by beach boy Dennis Wilson. So this was one of the girls uh, who got okay. Charlie introduced to Dennis Wilson. Gotcha. He took them to his house and left them there. But when he returned, Charlie and the rest of the family had moved in. He was gone maybe (laughs) two hours. Wow. Yeah. So this began Charlie's relationship with Dennis. Okay. Patricia was also involved in the Mendocino trial where they sold LSD to the kids. So she was a Mendocino witch or whatever Mm -hmm. they had, you know, nicknamed. Patricia went by Katie and the family and she was involved in both the Tate and LaBianca murders. Okay. So the next one is Leslie Van Houten, born on August 23rd, 1949 in Los Angeles, California. She grew up in a typical middle-class household. Her dad, Paul, was an automotive auctioneer, and her mom, Jane, was a school teacher. Leslie had two adopted siblings, a boy and a girl, who were orphans from Korea. Her parents divorced in 1963, 
and the kids stayed with her mom. And she attended high school at Monrovia High School, where she was popular and well-liked. She was even elected homecoming queen twice. She pretty much had it made there. And this is also where she began using drugs at the age of 15. She ended up being a runaway and only returned long enough to finish high school. You know, I don't want to preach on uh, divorce, and I know it's so common these days, but every single one of these is a... Talks about divorce. Divorce. Well, no, not not, not, not No, 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 no. Not just divorce. Maybe not text. Maybe, you know, there's always the one, right, that either negative or positive, but this one may be positive in that sense, but it's most of them divorced or some kind of bad, just the parents, even if they stay together, it's a, he's, dad's an alcoholic and, or what have you, you know, but most of these are all divorce. Yeah, that's true. There's a separation of families. That's true. So to be Mm -hmm. noted. And well, and her mom was kind of ruthless. Listen, her mom forced her to have an abortion at age 17. Wow. What if she didn't want to? Yeah. It's supposed to be her choice, but mom made the choice for her. Mm -hmm. After she graduated high school, she moved in with her father and attended a business college where she studied to become a legal secretary. She also started gravitating towards spiritualism and planned to live in a yogic spiritual community. I looked that up. It was kind of like a hippie commune Mm -hmm. back then. But they were really into yoga. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Did they do yoga with goats? Goat yoga? Have you ever seen the goat yoga? Oh my gosh, just stop. (laughs) In the summer of 1968, she met some members of the family in San Francisco while visiting Charlie, and she moved to Spawn Ranch three weeks later, where she started using LSD and other psychedelic drugs. She became completely dedicated to Charlie. She participated in La Bianca murders to prove herself. Mm -hmm. That was the whole reason she went. Yeah. So... Let's talk about a few of the minor family members that weren't involved in the in the infamous Tate LaBianca murders, but were involved in pulling off some murders or attempted murders for Charlie, either directly or indirectly. Okay. You've got first is Bobby Beausoleil. He was not involved in the in the Tate LaBianca murders, but he did murder Gary Henman. And many believe that the Tate LaBianca murders were committed in order to help free Bobby from prison pointing the finger at the Black Panthers. Uh, okay. They tried to do like a copycat murder type yeah. thing mm-hmm. to take the the pressure off, off of him. Yeah. Like it, like, so it wouldn't look like he did it. Right. So okay. then they would have to free him. I'm tracking. Yep. So it was worth briefly mentioning him for that. He was born November 6, 1947 in Santa Barbara, California. Bobby grew up in a Catholic home. His parents sent him to a reform camp for bad behavior when he was 15 years old, though. And after this, he fled to Los Angeles and San Francisco, getting involved in the music scene, which I don't really know what that means so much. Mm-hmm. I know what a drug scene is. I don't know what the music scene is, but <laughs> that's what he did. That's what he did. He was convicted of stabbing Gary Henman to death on Charlie's orders and was in jail at the time of the Tate LaBianca murders. Okay. So second is Bruce Davis, who was involved in both the Gary Henman and the Donald Shea murders. Born on October 5th, 1942 in Monroe, Louisiana, he was an editor on his high school yearbook and he attended college in Tennessee before moving to California in the early 1960s. He met Charlie and some of the family in Oregon and eventually became Charlie's right-hand man. Bruce was present during the murder of Henman and actively participated in the torture and murder of Donald Shea. And then the last one, or third, is Steve Clem Krogan, born on July 13, 1951. Clem worked odd jobs at Spawn Ranch long before the family moved there, and he knew stuntman Donald Shea. 
He was a high school dropout and was involved in petty crimes prior to joining Charlie's cult. And Charlie believed that Shay had narked on them for some criminal activities that they had committed. So he ordered Clem and Bruce to murder Shay. Hmm. And they did. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and there was like, it's kind of worth noting, there's Squeaky, you know, Lynette from who mm-hmm. she didn't k- kill anyone or anything like that. But she was so devoted to Charlie that she not only hung out in front of the courthouse during the whole trial and all that kind of stuff. She tried to go to prison with them by attempting to assassinate President oh, Gerald yeah. Ford. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yes, like how stupid like are you? Mm-hmm. You want to go be with him so bad that you think you'll end up in the same prison and all that? Yeah, like, like what are you thinking? Obviously not thinking. One, you're going to be in a separate prison. Right? You're a woman. Uh-huh. Like, what are the odds? But yes, so she actually tried to assassinate President yeah. Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. Just crazy. Crazy-ass people. Yep. So next week, part two, we'll actually talk about the murders. We'll talk about his mind control a little bit more. And we'll talk about the crazy-ass trial. Because yeah, the be trial good. was insane with shaved heads and interrupting judges and just everything that they did. It, it was kind of nuts. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. It will be. Next week's will be fun. But I had to introduce these people and give some background on them. Sure. And there's just not enough time. No, it's good to give that context and kind of know what these people, who the who they were a little bit. Right. And I don't know. It just, just does good, provide good context, I guess, mm-hmm. to, to the story. Yeah. So. so with that, you guys, tune in next week for part two of the Manson family. And in the meantime... You can go check us out on our website at Wickedness, True Crime and the Unknown, or follow us on Instagram at Wickedness, True Crime. If you want to, you can check us out on anchor.fm slash wickedness. And you can also support us on anchor.fm slash wickedness by clicking on support if you feel like supporting us to keep these fun times coming to you guys. What? What? <laughs> So thanks for listening and we will see you guys back next week. Adios. Bye.